Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. As always, we're very thankful and uh, grateful for your presence as well as our time together again. If you have your Bibles and you just be turning to the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to start there tonight as I introduce where we'll be and what we'll be doing the next couple of Sunday evenings, if it be the Lord's will. And that is, we will be talking about David's rise, fall, and restoration. There was a time when I would have tried to give you all of this tonight, but we've changed. So at the very least, it'll be two, possibly three, depending on how far we make it tonight. So we will just have a a stop at some point, and we'll resume there. Romans 15, 4 comes to mind when we go to the Old Testament, and the Bible says, whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. There is something to be learned when we study the Old Testament that's beneficial for us and our faith, our walk with God, and it ultimately provides us hope, and we should learn the Old Testament for that end or use it that way. At some point, it would be great to do character studies and to look at individuals and glean lessons from their lives. This is not the start of that, but it is really a study about David, at least to some degree in regards to his life, Uh, and, and as God interacts with David. And so we'll be looking at David, but remember God and how he responds, and we'll, we'll talk about both of those things. When we talk about David's rise, it is one of the more impressive events in Scripture and in history. Uh, David is truly impressive in what he did in his life. Before he fell, before he was restored, he rose, and the rise was simply incredible. It's what takes us back here to 1 Samuel. I said 17, we should have gone back a chapter or two to 15, because Things are always connected. When we start with David, it'd be hard to do that if we didn't acknowledge King Saul. And David and Saul are connected. In fact, they will be uh, for much of his life. But before David, back in chapter 15, King Saul was God's anointed. And he was the king of Israel, the very first king, in fact. And in chapter 10 is when he is anointed, and so if you were to read from there forward, you you will see the events of Saul's life. And by chapter 15, God has given Saul a command to go and to judge or destroy the Amalekites. Now, that reference would actually take you back to the book of Exodus, because when Moses brought the children of Israel out of bondage, the Amalekites attacked them unprovoked. And God said, write this down. This was when Moses' arms were being held up, and Aaron and Hur was doing that, and Joshua was fighting. And this was that time. And God said, write that down. I will remember Amalek and what he did. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel 7 is, uh, uh, 1 Samuel 15 is God's remembrance. And what God tells Saul to do, you can read it here in the first three verses. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he himself came out against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him Put him to death, both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and and donkey. And and God goes on, and he's very clear, absolutely destroy them for what they did. Well, if you were to read chapter 15, you will see that Saul started out well, but he didn't complete and do what God said. He didn't obey him. In fact, notice verse 9, the wording of that. The Bible says, but Saul and the people spared They spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good. And King James says, would not. Uh, The NASV says, were not willing. So this was a conscious decision. This was a choice made. It's not that they couldn't do it. They could have carried it out, but they didn't do it. They would not. They were not willing to destroy them utterly. Well, that's exactly what God said to do, and they were not willing to do it. And as a result of that, they... They they destroyed that which was despised and worthless, but they kept the best of everything. 
In verse 10, down to, again, the end of the chapter, Samuel will come and confront Saul about what he's done, and Saul will actually say the words, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. If you look at verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And really, that phrase should really end for all time. The, the, the thought that if I have a sincere heart, God will accept it. If I mean well and I have good intentions, God will accept it. That verse really should end anybody thinking that way because the Bible actually says the words, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. God wants our obedience. He doesn't want us to decide whether or not we think something's better than what he has prescribed. He doesn't want us to feel a particular way that this would be helpful, useful, beneficial, and therefore we won't do what he said that we'll give him this. He really doesn't want that. And this verse and this chapter clearly spells that out. This would be one of those times that it would be good to learn from the Old Testament. Samuel goes on to say, however, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And it's this that eventually moves us to David. Saul will no longer be king over God's people. God wants another king. This goes on, and you look at chapter 16, began reading there in verse number 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your home with oil and gold. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Now, if you're familiar with this chapter, you know that he has uh, seven sons, I believe it is, and each one comes before him, and he eventually says, oh, this is him. This must be the one. I think it's Eliab, and he's tall and big, again, in stature like Saul. And slide down, if you will, to verse number 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the, this is the one. There's a great verse here. We talked about memorizing Scripture this morning. Verse 7 would be a great one to memorize. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look upon his countenance or his stature, for I have rejected him. Because the Lord doesn't see as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If you were to keep reading this, Samuel will eventually ask Jesse, do you have any other sons? And he says, one more. Verse number 12, so he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. If we were gleaning lessons, this would be one more to glean. Talk about not judging by appearance. It's often God's way to use that which looks unusable. It looks like that's not beneficial. It looks like that's undersized, undermanned, under whatever, underwhelming. That's what, it always looks like that, and then that's the one that God has use for. And so, David will be anointed God's king. You know, chapter 16 leads us right into chapter 17, and it's about this time that Goliath comes and Goliath will come and challenge Israel, and David will defeat him. I would urge, when you get time, go back and read it again. It's not a children's story, although once we get a certain age, we kind of treat them like that. We, we kind of treat them like that would be a good thing to read the preschoolers. That would be a really good thing to tell the second and third graders. And I don't know, let's get animated and tell them, and let's set the giant over there, and let's let little David here, and give him, and let's let them see and then the older people completely forget just how impressive and wonderful this account and the other accounts are like this. And then you know what the adults do? They go struggle with their faith. Where would be a good place to go see it? The Old Testament and people just like David this young man who has never been to war is going to defeat a war-hardened giant and win a victory for his nation. 
I would urge again, be impressed. Be impressed with David. Be impressed with Goliath's description. Look there in verse number four. You'll notice the first thing it says with him is a champion. I don't know if Goliath lost many battles. I'm going to guess they don't call you champion for nothing. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Somewhere estimates range between eight and a half and ten and a half feet tall. A basketball hoop is ten feet tall, just by way of some visual image in your mind. Eight and a half, ten and a half feet tall. His armor said to weigh about 91 pounds. His spearhead, 15 pounds. Notice what he does in verse 6. He also had a bronze graves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not in a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose you a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then he will become, we will become your servants. If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants. Verse number 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The Bible is the, 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 it's the greatest and most amazing document in the world. Obviously, it came from God, and that's what makes it so, but it does this wonderful thing of constantly painting a scene and letting you see it. And so, there's Saul and his army over here. There's this great, this, this valley, if you will, between them. And then on the other side are all these Philistines in the raid, and Goliath comes out and makes this big pronouncement, and he does this, I believe the Bible will say, 40 days, twice a day. And Israel is afraid. And then the Bible will just do this thing and pivot and start talking about David. You're introduced to him back there in verse number 12. And verse number 12 here will say, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons, and Jesse was old in his day. And they would just go on and start talking to you about it. And it'll just continue and continue. And at some point, it'll tell you, and Jesse sent David up with food for his brothers. And on, when David was up there, saw his army greatly afraid. Goliath doing what he has been doing. It's different this time, though, because this time, David heard him. See, David hadn't been there. And so this has gone unchecked 40 days, twice a day, 80 times. Give me a man to fight with. Aren't you an army? Aren't you soldiers? We're soldiers. I'm here. Give me somebody to fight with. Listen, if you defeat us, we'll serve you no problem, man. But if we win, but David hadn't been there. And on this occasion, David was up there to bring food, and David heard. David is going to be discouraged, doubted, and what those who are doing that to him didn't realize is David had already had success. He'd already been delivered by God. Drop in about verse 26. We'll just take off reading there. Then David spoke to the men who were standing with him, saying, what will be done to the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with his words, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You have come down in order to see the battle. You ever had somebody try to discourage you by taking whatever it is you're doing and put the word little in front of it? Your little job over there, your little thing. Where'd you leave those little sheep, those few little sheep? Where'd you leave them up here with this great big battle going on, all the important stuff, David? What are you doing? Where are those few little sheep that you were supposed to watch after? 
David said, what have I done? Verse 29, it was just a question. Was it not a question? I think the King James says, is it not a cause? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. When, they, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he went and sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fall on, fail on account of, this, of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I said, discouraged by his brother, doubted by King Saul. Verse number 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine. You can't do that. You can't go and fight against him with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David had already had success. They just didn't know about it. And so David responds, verse 34, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion and a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed. Let me ask you this. Who in this battle knows that? You know the Philistines don't know that. The army of Saul doesn't know that. King Saul didn't know that. Maybe his brother didn't know that. Goliath certainly does not know that. You know who does know that? David does. God has already rescued me. God has already delivered me. And when we say words like lions and bears and mouth, you know that's not typically stuff we run to. That's not, oh, yeah, oh, yeah let, me, let me go down there and take it out of his mouth. Let me just do that. David did. The only one who is certain is David. The only one. David said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Since he has taunted the armies of the living God. You know who else was left out of this equation was the very one, and for the first time is included, and that's God. Saul is afraid, the army is afraid, and Goliath is defying the living God. It's not just an army, it's Israel. It's not just any nation, it's God's nation. And to defy them is to defy God, and David seems to be the only one who knows that. If you were to continue to read the rest of chapter 17, you will find David and Goliath get into we would call it trash talking. That's how we would say it. But they have things to say to each other, and they are both very confident. Goliath talks about feeding David's body to the birds, killing him on this battlefield. David talks about taking his head from his body and killing him. One of them is right. In fact, the Bible will say that David ran toward Goliath. Armed with a sling and faith, 38 to 58 will tell us that David not only failed the giant, but verse 57 55 or 54, David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. How did he get it off his body, you ask? He didn't have a sword, so he used his. He took his sword and cut off his head and brought it to Jerusalem. When we talk about David's rise, this is the stuff of legend. David rise was meteoric. In fact, if you were to continue to read, what you will find is the women began to chant, when they get back, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It, it's so impressed in our minds that we use this phrase. We say when, when the odds are against a team, versus another team, or when a circumstance seemingly is completely out of odds, and out, we say, boy, it's like David and Goliath. I wonder what they said before David killed Goliath. Because that's what we say. It's a David and Goliath situation. David is why we say that. 
His rise is unbelievable. He will triumph and he will receive such honor. David's rise was meteoric. But David's rise will give way to his fall. David will have success maybe like no other. David will be and is even today the greatest king in Israel's history. Old Testament Israel, David is the model. In fact, when you read of a king, if he is righteous, he'll be said to walk in the ways of his father David. If he's wicked, he'll be said to walk in the ways of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel the sin. He didn't walk like David. That'll be the comparison. David's rise was so great, and David was such a wonderful king in Israel. It's what makes his fall all the more surprising. David's fall was surprising for several reasons. Number one, I'm going to suggest that his fall was surprising because of his character. The individual we read about in chapter 16 and verse 7, look not at his count, I refused him. The Lord doesn't look on the outward, he looks on the heart. You know whose heart he looked upon? David's. And he said, that's him. David has a singular description. I, I don't know if anybody else enjoys it, but David does. And there are a lot of descriptions in the Bible that God gives to people. Job was, we read it this morning, the greatest man in the East. Abraham will be called the friend of God. Moses, faithful in all of God's house. Daniel will be referred to as greatly beloved. Noah, Job, and Daniel, righteous men is how the Bible will describe them. But there is one person, the words of Acts 13 and verse 22, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do my will. I don't know of anybody else who has enjoyed that description, but David did. Why was his fall so surprising? Because of his character. His fall was surprising because of David's position. David was king of Israel. David was the king of God's holy nation. That's what they were to be. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You know where that would start? It was supposed to start with the king. He was supposed to write his own copy of God's law. He was supposed to have it read by the priest. He was supposed to understand it and live it before his brethren. He was to be an example, the ultimate judge of life and death, the ruler of conquered nations. They, the Gentile nations, would look to Israel, to their king, to find Jehovah. No other nation like this nation, no other king like their kings, because there was no other God like their God. One of the things we learn from David is nobody's immune. If we do the things that David did, we can suffer the fall that David fell. David's fall is surprising because of David's knowledge. When you turn to 2 Samuel 11, where the fall occurs, among the things that will stand out is David knew her family. David knew the family. Eliam was her father. He'll be told that in verse number three. Ahithophel was David's counselor, Bathsheba's grandfather. Imagine what this did in his court. Uriah, her husband, was one of David's mighty men. David knew relationships he had with the family makes it surprising. David's fall was surprising because of what David did. The actions that he took, David didn't miss a service or two at the tabernacle. David didn't decide, you know, I'm not going to worship God this week. That's not what David did. When you read through 2 Samuel 11, I don't know how you rate sins or what you think about them, but whatever it is and however you prioritize them, David did some heinous things, some egregious things, that if any faithful person did them, we would be absolutely shocked. Those are the kinds of things that David did. Note just a few. In verse number two of this chapter, David lusted after a woman, not his wife. Evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful in appearance. 
David saw her, in verse number three, he sent for her. David sent and inquired about the woman. And so he found out about her. Is she a single woman living by herself? No, not that that would have made it right, but she wouldn't have been attached to anybody else, and they could have told him that, but that's not what they told him. No, what they told him was, she's married, and you know her husband, and you know her family. In fact, verse number three, they sent in a quiet about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David's knowledge makes it surprising. He knew she was married. David committed adultery with her, verse number four. He sent messengers, took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. David got her pregnant. Verse number five, the woman conceived. She sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Sometimes we have to be clear. We don't mean to suggest when we're talking to young people or anybody for that matter, old people, anybody, and we're talking about sexual purity, we're not saying don't get pregnant. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying to young men, now don't you go out and get a young lady pregnant. We're not saying to women, now don't you go out and let a man get you pregnant. We're not saying that. We're saying be pure and holy and don't go have sex. You could do the one without the other. David's problem here is not that she got pregnant. David's problem is he committed adultery. That's the problem. Let's be clear what the problem is. Now, having done that, she did get pregnant. And so now David then seeks to hide it. Don't avoid pregnancy, avoid fornication. David should have done that, and there would have been no pregnancy. But now that she's pregnant, David then does more things, and that's kind of the way sin works. It tends to grow. It tends to get worse. We tend to add sin to sin. If we don't stop, repent, turn immediately, it tends to get worse. So too with David. Read a few verses there in verse number six. David sent to Joab. You know where they are. They're actually at war. They're in a battle. David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. Sent Uriah to David. Now, as you're reading the Bible, you can kind of see all of these various sections. And by the way, back there, we didn't talk about it. Goliath was lying. Goliath came out and said, if you defeat us, we will serve you. They didn't. He was lying. They ran. And so they had to chase him, kill him, and then subject him. But he was lying. So there's Goliath and the Philistines. And then there's all of these other events and King Saul and so forth. And then there's Uriah. We've been introduced to her husband, and he is out fighting. He's not an Israelite. He's a Hittite. He's fighting with and for Israel. And so he's come into the nation. And now he's fighting for the nation. He's one of David's mighty men, the inner circle. And David has done this at home with his wife. And he doesn't know it. And then David says to Joab, send me, your, go out into the battle, find Uriah, send him home. That's not common. That's not common. You don't do that in war. That's not common. Soldiers don't go home until the war's over, and Uriah knows that. And it must be important. It must be something significant. The king wants to see me, and he knows what we're doing. You imagine all the different circles. Can you see all of the different things that work? And right in the center of it is David orchestrating it. He is in control of the events. He's the one moving the narrative. He's the one doing it. When we talk about his fall, it's not accidental. It's not incidental. It didn't just sort of kind of meander around and it just happened. No, absolutely not. The man with that kind of heart is doing these kinds of things. Send me Uriah. And so he does. Verse number seven says, when Uriah came to David, asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house in a present for the king that was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his wife. What, what's David trying to do? It seems very clear. David is trying to cover up the sin by ultimately trying to blame it on Uriah. Go on home to your wife. Maybe he'll be with her tonight, and maybe by so doing, if he does, then maybe we can pawn that off as the pregnancy. Actually, the child is yours. Maybe that's how we can cover it up. But Uriah slept outside. In fact, Uriah explained 
his faithfulness. Verse number 11. David says, now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, verse 10, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Nobody else is with their wife at home. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife by your life? And the life of your soul, I will not do this. Can you imagine that conversation? The faithfulness of Uriah, the honor, the commitment to Israel and to his men. They're out there sleeping in the fields. There's no way I'm coming home to go have a good time at my house, eat my food, rest in comfort, and be with my wife. When Israel is out battling, by your soul, O king, by you, I would never do that. Can you imagine the juxtaposition of these two men as they have this conversation? David's fall is incredible because of what he did. He had to stand there, hear that from Uriah, and not be done trying. And so he does. Verse number 12, David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow. I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk in the evening. Went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants but he did not go down to his house. Not even drunk he would give in to David's attempts. Just incredible. David is now moved to desperation, and so he reaches the conclusion that we have to kill him. A man that devout is not going to do it. I welcomed him, brought him in, just, I thought, maybe from just being outside of the field, just to be home from the war, just to be at ease. I thought he would just go down there and it'd be done, nice and easy. We'd put a bow on that thing and we'd move on, but he didn't do it. I thought if we got him drunk, surely if we got him not in his right mind, that'll do it. He'll be in a weakened state. He won't be thinking as he ought to. He won't be as strong and as convicted. Maybe then that didn't do it. Just got to kill him. And so he does. Verse 22, the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him. The messenger said to David, now coincidentally, this is the messenger after the job is done. They, they've already done it. He told him to put Uriah in the hottest battle. And when you get him into the hottest battle, retreat from him. Don't support him. Don't protect him. Leave him and let him be killed. Having done that, Joab sends the messenger back, tell David this is what happened. And when the king says to you, why did you approach a wall? That's not very smart. They're shooting down at you. Why would you do that? When he does that and he gets angry at, our, at, at the way we did it, then you tell him, Uriah's dead also. And so what we're reading is the messenger's report. The messenger departed, came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city strong and overthrow it. And so encourage him. I don't know how many times I read this account, read this account, read this account, read this account, and every time I read it, I just focused on Uriah. And I just, David killed Uriah, David killed Uriah, David killed Uriah. You know, but there's more there because when they went to the hottest battle and retreated, not every soldier knew the plan. And so they left other soldiers there too. In order to kill Uriah, they killed other people. All right, you just chew on that for just a Who's doing this? David's doing this. The man after God's own heart, the man with that character, the man with that rise, the man 
who ran toward Goliath and killed him and took his head off with his own sword. The man who trusted in God to fight a lion and a bear, that man, his rise is meteoric, but his fall, absolutely astounding because of what David did. Verse 27 will be, again, one of those verses you'll want to remember. Verse 26 says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the morning time was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore a son. It's the last phrase that makes the verse worth remembering. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. You know who watched that entire scene play out? The Lord did. It's shocking because of what was done. It's surprising because of what God had done for David. You know, in chapter 12, when Nathan comes and he gives him that parable about the two travelers, he says a great many things to him in that section. And one of them is in verse 7 and verse 8. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the one that had all of these flocks and herds, and you're the one who took one little ewe lamb and killed it to be eaten by a stranger. You're the one who did that. David, you're the man. The one you just said is worthy of death, that's you. And verse number 7 says, Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Here's what God says. I anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Grab the next phrase. God is talking, and he says, if that had been too little, if, if that wasn't enough already, you could have asked for more, and I would have given it to you. David, I've given, I've given, I've given, I've given, I've given, and if you needed more, I would have given you more. I would have added It's surprising because of what God had done for David. It's surprising because, well, verse number 9 says, you have despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. You notice the first person usage of you. You have struck down. The reference to David, rather. You, David, you struck down Uriah. David could argue, I didn't wield the sword, but you did it. Uriah is dead because of you, because of your lust after his wife, because of your trying to hide it and cover it up, because of you, because of your order to put him in the hottest battle and then retreat. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. It's as if you were on the battlefield on the other side and you thrust him through. You killed him. You didn't just despise the word of the Lord. Notice verse number 14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. There's two things we could talk about in that verse, but please grab the first part. Let this, let this go and work in your mind. I said there's no nation like this nation. That's true. No king like their kings. That's true. But why is that? Because of God. I said this nation was to be the one that directed people to Jehovah. But if these people are behaving like that, who gets blasphemed? Who gets talked about? 
Who gets put down if they behave like that? God says, you, David, by these actions, you've gifted blasphemy of me to the nations. You have given them occasion not to blaspheme you, but to blaspheme me. You did that. David's fall is surprising for all of these reasons. On the other hand, David's fall is not all that surprising. When you consider the things that David did that helped him fall, anyone doing what he did shouldn't be terribly surprised if the end is destructive. What are the things that he did? Go back to verse number 1 of chapter 11. Why isn't it surprising? Verse number 1 of chapter 11 says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. David should have been somewhere else. David's a king, and this is the kind of kings go out to battle, and David is not in the battle. Why isn't it surprising? Well, when we are in the wrong place, we might do the wrong thing. It seems to be the case that location can impact action, which is why we spend so much time talking about who are you with and where are y'all going? Where is David? It's not surprising. If you're in the wrong place, you might be doing the wrong thing. David was alone on the roof. Sometimes idle time and minds are a recipe for disaster. I read it someplace, I don't know where, but it really stuck with me. It said a man is made or marred when he is alone. It's not surprising. David may have been prideful. I don't know. I say may have been because other than lust, selfishness, self-centeredness, maybe pride was part of it. Verse number three says he was told. He was told who she was. He knew her. He knew her family. He was, she was Uriah's wife, and he didn't stumble or slip. He wasn't overcome. He planned, plotted, and performed his sinful deeds. Did he think he was entitled? Did he think being the king allowed him to take liberties and to do things for which he knew they were wrong? Maybe, maybe it came back to his mind. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Maybe he's relishing in the victories wrought by Israel. Maybe he's saying to himself on some level, look what I've done. If we aren't careful, we could do great things for God and then disobey the very God we did great things for. Sometimes people sing your praises, you can begin to like the lyrics and the song. Maybe he thought he was entitled. It's not surprising, verse number three, he plowed right through the warning. It's not surprising because David was looking at the wrong thing. Verse number two, he saw the woman. That would have been a good time to run. But he didn't. When we fix our eyes on the wrong things, when we want that which we have no right to have, when we think about it, we desire it, it will not be surprising if we take it. It's where the warnings began so earnest in Scripture. It's how sin works in our lives. The woman, Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6, she saw it, she desired it, she took it. Achan in Joshua chapter 7, I saw the Babylonian garments, the shekels of gold and silver. I saw it, I coveted it, I took it. There's no difference here. David saw her, he sent for her, he took her. Miss Potiphar tried the same thing with Joseph, you recall? She cast her eyes on him, and then she said, lie with me. Our desires can be so strong for that which we have no right to have that it can feel compulsive and border on animalism. We can convince ourselves we cannot live without it. We can convince ourselves I've got to have it. The lights can be flashing, and we can plow right through every barrier, and yet it's still within our control. Joseph was the subject of someone else's desire. But instead of Bathsheba's actions, Joseph told a different path. In fact, Joseph said to her, you're married. You're another man's wife. I have no right to you. You're seeing this in reverse. She cast her eyes. She said, lie with me. She spake day after day. She grabbed him. 
and Joseph ran away. It's difficult to imagine a young man being pursued persistently by an older woman for expressly the purpose of sexual relationship, resisting. And yet, that's exactly what Joseph does. She said, lie with me. Joseph said, no. She sent an innocent man to jail. All of that happened after she cast her eyes on him. That which she had no right to have, the exact same thing happened here. David's life changed forever after he looked upon and desired a woman he was not to have. Why isn't it surprising? If we put the wrong things into our hearts, it will not be surprising when the wrong things come out. The warning of Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 is just that. We can do great things for God and then lose sight of God. We can start to live for our desires rather than serve God. David wrote a psalm, Psalm 101. Listen to the first part. One title reads, I will walk with integrity. Verse number three of that psalm says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. It's not surprising that David then tried to hide his sin because that's what we do. The temptation to hide a sin may be greater than the temptation to commit sin. Nearly every time we read sin in the Bible, we read of somebody trying to cover it up. Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden. Achan hid the gold in the garments. David tried to hide his sin. It is a warning to every one of us, a sobering thought. We're not immune. Be mindful. Be cautious. Be aware it could happen to you. You could get into this process and every time we try to cover it up in Scripture and in our lives, it simply will not be kept down. Sin is like a lump under the carpet, can't be made smooth. It can be covered up, but it can't be kept down. It's like living and active, and so it can be covered but not concealed. It's like a fitted sheet that's too small for the bed. The corners won't stay down. It just keeps coming up, discomforting, hard to sleep on, toss and turn. It just won't let you rest. It's like yeast and dough. It keeps rising to the surface of our minds. It hurts our conscience. It hurts our character. It hurts our influence. It hurts our relationship. We want the sin, but we don't want the consequences. That's what David did. We want the sin, but we still want people to think of us highly. That's what David did. That's why he's trying to hide it. We want the sin, but we also want to be thought of as righteous and holy. And so the lengths we'll go through to hide our sin can be as bad or worse than the sin we committed in the first place. Don't fool yourself. We're talking about David. What will I do to hide my sin? Will I get somebody drunk? David did. Will I enlist others to help me? David did. Will I kill someone? David did. Truth is, we just don't know what we'll do. What will they think of me? How will I get past this? I'm going to destroy my life. To hide sin, we don't want people to know we've committed. It's not surprising that the man who is called one after God's own heart is now trying to cover up sin from the very God who reads hearts. We're going to stop here. Seems like a good place to stop. Next time, we'll talk about God and why what God did is not surprising. We'll continue to talk about David's fall, and then we'll turn our attention, if not next week, the week after, on David's restoration. You know, I tried to, to be as, as, as fair and as biblical as I could with each one of these sections, and so we should rejoice in David's rise. It's simply incredible. A young man taking on the giant and saving the nation. It's simply incredible. A faithful king, the very pinnacle of the kings of Israel, having such a massive fall. Also incredible. But at some point, the arc of this thing goes back to restoration. And to hear David on the other side, now that's where we want to be. If you're not a Christian tonight, maybe you can relate to David's rise. Maybe 
you were one of those people that just did incredible things and people sung your praises and you were the toast of the town. And, and maybe you can relate to David's fall. I, who can't appreciate that the struggle, the things that sometimes happen to our lives, but frame that in terms of being a Christian. What would you do if it was found out what David did? You know, but David is going to have a third act. And ultimately, that's the goal. It might be the case that you're not a Christian. If it's not, become one tonight. Let that third act start tonight. Come to Jesus and let Jesus save you, and God will cleanse you. I said what God did was not surprising. That's what we'll pick up. And what you'll find is though God is displeased, he's not done with David. He still wants David to come back. He still wants to use David. He still wants a relationship with David and that's true of you too. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and repent, confess his name, be immersed in water. I thought, I thought Derek did a fantastic job this morning of helping us see, again, what we're doing. We're not going through a ritualistic act. No, we're changing our hearts and our minds and becoming new creations in Christ. So thankful for Tyler and others who have made that decision and the invitation is always open. If you are his child, can we talk? It might be the case that even tonight, you know there's something you're holding on to, that there's something you're keeping, hoping nobody ever finds it out. Oh, now listen, if you've repented of the thing and stopped the thing, and God bless you, let's move forward. But if you haven't repented yet, and you're still holding on to that thing, and what you're doing is hoping it can just be kept down, well, friends, that's going to be no good for your life, and that's not the way God wants you to live. Make up your mind tonight. David will be confronted, and at some point, David's going to make a change. Let that be you tonight, if necessary. If it's not, praise God. If it is, come home. If we can help, please do so as we stand and as we sing.